haven't finished a message or done it in two parts. Um, this is one I'm just like, all of these parts feel essential to this, and we need to be able to deal with this. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, because this really is the rest of the book of Acts is expressing this. We'll, we'll read this verse, we'll, we'll have a brief word of prayer, and then we'll dive back into where we left off this morning. This is Jesus speaking to the apostles before he ascended to heaven. And they've asked about when's the, you know, when's the kingdom be restored. He's going to say, that's not for you to know. The Father's put those times in his hand. But, verse 8, in contrast to that, you shall receive power, this, this ability, this divine power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. So that happens at Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, empowers them. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Okay, you're going to go tell everyone what you have seen and heard, particularly the resurrection. Witnesses tell what they have seen, both in Jerusalem, that's where it starts with Peter's sermon on Pentecost we looked at a few weeks ago, and in all Judea, their witness spills over from that city into the surrounding countryside, and in Samaria, we looked at that a little bit briefly this morning in Acts chapter 8, and under the uttermost part of the earth, and that is still going on today. One of the things we touched on when we looked at this text a few weeks ago is that the task is unfinished. Jesus is very much implying that I'm ascending to heaven and this task begins and it continues until I return. In fact, the angel says, you know, they're standing there gazing up into heaven. The same Jesus who you've seen ascend is going to come back that same way. He's going to return visibly and physically. Uh, And the implication is until that happens, you've got a job to do, which is to be a witness to Christ. It is to evangelize. And so this morning we talked about the, the, the fact that God has defined the task for us. What is evangelism? It's very simply telling people the good news of Jesus and calling them to accept it. It's not just information, but it's information and persuasion. It's not just here's the facts, but it's facts that demand a response. It's both of those two things together. We also noted that God has defined the message, and we spent a significant amount of time today just carefully laying out what is the gospel, what is the evangel, what is the message that we as Christians are to declare. If we get the message wrong, we might be very, very passionate. We might be very bold, but we're not giving the message of life. Both boldness and accuracy are essential when it comes to giving the gospel. Uh, And so you might have a beautiful scene, but no light. Uh, You might be very accurate, but it's not visible. That's a message that's correct, but not declared. Or you might have a message that is declared but not accurate. We want to have a message that's both accurate and made known to the world around us. So where I want to go this evening is how do we go about doing that? And we're going to look at the book of Acts and just look at some examples of the different ways uh, to do that. But before we do, let's just go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we dive in. Father, you have called us to make disciples of the nations. You have called us to preach the gospel to every creature. And Father, we recognize that we are not capable of doing this on our own. We desperately need your spirit. And Father, we also confess this evening that we are often silent when we should speak. We are often fearful when we ought to be bold. We are often hesitant when we need to be direct. So God, I pray that you would fill us with courage You would fill us with confidence that comes from your Spirit's indwelling presence. 
Would you help us as a church to be a church that is marked by passionate personal evangelism? And Father, not just speaking to the issues of the day, but pointing people to Christ. We ask these things for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. According to uh, various studies that have been done, there are approximately 7,500 news anchors in the United States. Uh, That number was actually surprisingly low to me. I thought that like every town had a bunch of them, but 7,500. And the job of a news news anchor is to simply get the news out. These are the people on the evening news that are like, this evening there was another traffic jam in the Bankhead Tunnel, or the the weather tomorrow is going to be insanely hot once again. They're the familiar faces on local TV who give us these, these updates. They might be the less familiar faces on sort of the national stage. And frankly, as, many, as much as many people dislike and distrust the media, and sometimes for good reason, I think we would all admit that people who give us the news are filling a vital and important role to let us know what is going on in the world. They're supposed to get the news out. And sure, sometimes they get the news wrong, and sometimes they leave out important aspects, but the basic description is to get the news out. That, in a sense, is our job as Christians, is to get the news out without changing the facts, without tweaking things. Our job is to get the good news of the gospel out to a needy world, and we've got to get the message right. We saw that this morning. We've also got to embrace that calling. Our job is not to editorialize, but to announce. We're not to be opinion journalists, but more news anchors of here's the message, and we're going to declare it and call people to respond to it. That is what it means to be an evangelist, is to declare the good news, to declare the gospel to the world around us. So I want to just pick up with these final two building blocks for a biblical vision of evangelism. Not only the fact that God has defined the task, not only the fact that God has determined the message, but I want to pick up thirdly this evening with the fact that God uses Christians to evangelize. I know this is a really obvious point. But God doesn't send angels to come and proclaim the gospel to the world around us. He doesn't strike people with lightning while they're walking down the street and all of a sudden they're saved. But as Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and that it is absolutely necessary for preachers to be sent out to make the gospel known. The book of Acts, it's called the title at the top of my page, the Acts of the Apostles. And we've, we've noted the fact it could be the acts of the risen Christ through the spirit-empowered apostles. It's really Jesus who's working. But we get example after example in this book of the first generation of Christians doing precisely that, telling people about Christ. And here's what is striking, is the variety of ways, the variety of methods that God uses. There is not just, here's the one approved method for giving the gospel. You know, God, God calls all Christians everywhere to only knock on doors and use the Romans road or only to have conversations at work. There's kind of an above all, all of the above kind of strategy when it comes to getting the gospel out. So one of the, the first ways we see the gospel going out is in Acts chapter 2. So just turn over there with me. We, we looked at this in some detail a few weeks back, so we're not going to rehash this. But it's the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit comes upon the, uh, the Christians And they begin to speak in other languages, and a big crowd gathers. And Peter, verse 14, Acts 2, verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. And from there he begins to give them a recounting of the fact, hey, what you're seeing is not drunkenness, but the Spirit of God has fallen in fulfillment of prophecy. 
Then adds to that that Jesus is the promised Messiah who's risen from the dead, and David predicted him, and this can't be about David because David is dead, but Jesus is risen from the dead. So verse 36, therefore, here's sort of the summary, the call to action, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, and by the way, this is imperative in the, in the Greek, it's not just, hey, allow this to be, but that all the house of Israel must know this, must know assuredly, must accept this by faith, that God hath made the same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he declares the gospel to them through preaching. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission or the forgiveness of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he preaches And we find out in verse 41, 3,000 people respond in faith and signify that by stepping into the waters of baptism. We could give example after example. We have a number of examples in the book of Acts of public preaching. God uses Christians to evangelize, and one of the ways he does that is through public preaching, maybe in a a church gathering or out on a street uh, or you think of through church history, men like George Whitfield and John Wesley, who did open-air preaching and thousands came to hear them. But preaching, this authoritative heralding to large groups of people. It might be a specially organized crusade like what Billy Graham did back in the day. It might be preaching that goes out over the airwaves or over the internet to bring sinners to faith in Christ. And Peter is preaching. He's not, he is expounding Scripture. He is keeping Scripture central. Now, what, you, what is interesting when you look at the apostles' proclamation of the gospel, we do not see elaborate schemes. We don't see slick methods being cooked up to try to pad their numbers or to uh, manipulate people. We don't see high-pressure sales techniques to guilt people into making a decision. Rather, we see the simple and powerful declaration of the word of God laid onto the consciences of their hearers. It's the honest declaration of the good news of Jesus. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to hear what what Paul has to say about gospel ministry. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, seeing therefore we have this ministry, the gospel ministry, this this responsibility to, to, to make the gospel of Jesus known. As we have received mercy, we faint not. Okay, we've got such an awesome ministry, we 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 don't give up, we don't quit. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I love this. He's saying we're not resorting to trickery. We're not taking the scriptures and twisting them to make them say what we want. But we are plainly exposing to view what the Bible says and what Christ has done and making an appeal to people's consciences to respond. He's likely describing the, uh, the individuals in, in his day who would go around from town to town and would sort of do philosophical lectures for money, and some would do the same thing, would basically try to monetize the gospel. Uh, one way we could render this is say we don't peddle the word of God. We don't go around sort of preaching the word of God in order to get rich for ourselves, but rather just the plain declaration of the truth. Now, to be sure, we do see the early church loving and serving their neighbors. We do see Peter performing miracles and that becoming an avenue for the gospel going out. There is biblical precedent for saying we're going to perform mercy ministries. We're going to do good to our community in order to gain a hearing. 
But we have to be careful lest we slip into crass manipulation where you're, where you're trying to play on people's emotions and twist arms when the Spirit of God has not touched their conscience. So how do we go about, how does God use Christians to proclaim the gospel? One way is by preaching. Here's another way that's totally different. So if Peter's preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 3 to crowds of thousands, we go to the other end of the spectrum, which is simply a one-on-one conversation. Go over to Acts chapter 8 with me. Here we have a guy who's by the name of of Philip. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, there had been a Uh, Some division in the early church between the Greek speakers and the Hebrew speakers and the apostles called the church together. They appoint the first deacons. And there's seven of them. One of them is Stephen. He preaches a powerful sermon before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, and they kill him because they loved his sermon so much. He, He faces stoning because of the reaction to it. Same message, completely different response. Then we get in Acts chapter 8, Philip, we, we noted him briefly this morning. He goes to Samaria and he preaches. Later on in the book of Acts, this guy is so passionate for the gospel, he gets the name Philip the Evangelist. Uh, an evangelist is not some guy who has a fifth-wheel trailer who goes from church to church and does special meetings. An evangelist is somebody who preaches the gospel. By the way, nothing wrong with people going from church to church doing special meetings. I've got friends who do that. But if the term evangelist refers to those who evangelize. And so Philip gets that, that, that label. But look in verse 26, Acts chapter 8. So he's preached the gospel to all the villages of the Samaritans. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. This is one of the rare instances in Acts where we see special divine guidance uh, regarding ministry. Arise and go toward the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Uh, so you know, down to the Gaza Strip, going down towards Egypt. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot and read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. It's from Isaiah 53, which Brian read this morning. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself? Or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Here we get this other end of the spectrum. This is not preaching to a crowd of thousands, but this is a one-on-one conversation. You see, you you may say, I'm not comfortable doing public speaking. I'll never stand up before a crowd of people and declare the gospel. Great. Well, we have this example of a one-on-one conversation, a divine appointment. God orchestrates this, account, uh, this encounter as you read the text. It's very obvious that God is making sure that Philip crosses the path of the eunuch so that he can get the gospel, and he meets him just when he happens to be reading Isaiah 53. And occasionally, at various points in your life, God will bring those, those kinds of situations across your path where you bump into a complete stranger. The Spirit of God's been working on them. Other people have been witnessing to them. They've been under conviction, and you get to witness to them. 
I remember a time when I was a kid, my dad was cleaning the church where we were at, and a Sri Lankan guy just came and knocked on the door. He'd kind of grown up in Sri Lanka. I think he'd grown up as a Hindu, and was like, I'm looking for a priest. I want to figure out how to become a Christian. Like, never met the guy before, never had encountered the guy before, and dad brought him home, sat down with him, explained the gospel, the guy got saved. Like, praise God. I'll be honest, those situations are pretty rare, that you get someone who just cross their paths, and boom, there they are, they're ready to be converted. Philip is in the right place, at the right time, with the right message. And notice what his message is. It's Jesus. He starts at the same scripture and gets to Jesus. Beloved, we need to be so fluent with the gospel that we can sort of jump into any place in the storyline of the Bible and be able to get to Jesus. Uh, I was talking to Clay this morning on the way out. He was letting me know he's going to preach about David at Ahepa, and I just gave him the encouragement. I says, as you preach about David, don't forget to talk about the son of David. Right? Anywhere in the Bible, we want to get to get to Christ because he is the heart of the gospel. So the Ethiopian is ripe for the picking. The soil is ready for the planting. And these encounters are not encounters that you and I can manufacture. We can't sort of, you know, we try to strategize and make sure I'm at the right place at the right time. This is the working of God. Indeed, I would say that trying to plant the seed when God has not yet plowed the soil can actually be unhelpful. You can sometimes push people away when they're not ready. But think about the things that God could use to awaken someone's heart to where they're in a place like this guy who's just ready for this. Maybe someone has gotten to the end of their rope and realized, man, this religion I've grown up in does not give me answers. Or some personal tragedy has happened where all of a sudden they didn't think about eternity yesterday, but now they are thinking about eternity. A loved one passes away, and all of a sudden they're realizing, one day I'm going to die. And they're beginning to think about these things. Sometimes, sometimes tragedy will be the megaphone that God will use to awaken a lost world to their need for him. Sometimes a divorce has thrown someone back on a faith they long ago rejected. You see, in every tragedy in the midst of all brokenness, when questions arise, that is where the gospel can slip in. So God uses Christians. Sometimes it's the preaching to the huge crowds, Peter on Pentecost. Other times it's the divine appointment, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Another way we we see God using Christians are just individuals who are scattered. We looked at Acts 8 this morning, how the church is scattered and everybody went everywhere giving the gospel. Let me give you another example of this happening in Acts, because it seems to suggest this is a way that God works. Acts chapter 11, picking up in verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen... All right, so same persecution. We would look at persecution and be like, it's a real negative, it's a real downer. People are getting killed, hauled into prison. God's using it to scatter Christians. Those who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. That's all they knew is this is for Israel. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene is in North Africa. Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Same message, right? That Jesus, and he's the Lord, he's the resurrected king. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So here's these people who are scattered. They weren't planning to go to Cyprus or to Cyrene. 
they were planning to stay in Jerusalem and hang out with the Christians there. But circumstances have happened, and all of a sudden they're in a place where there's a bunch of people who don't know about Jesus. And so what do they do? They open their mouths and give the gospel. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, it says, you know, preaching the word to none of the Jews but the Jews only. But lo- notice the verb that's used in verse 20. Some of them, they come, uh, they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Uh, the word preaching here is not the word keruso, standing up and heralding, but simply the word for speaking, one-on-one conversations. I think you can envision them moving into town and having one-on-one conversations over meals, having in-home discussions with their new neighbors, robust back and forth with their co-workers. You see, every week we scatter dozens of different ways, interacting with hundreds of people every week. Other times, through circumstances, there is a, you know, a downsizing at work, and you lose your job, and all of a sudden you have to move to take a job out in Seattle. You're like, I didn't want to go live in Seattle. I liked living in Alabama. We got better football down here. And the weather, well, the weather's probably better up there. But then all of a sudden you're off moving to Seattle. You could look at that as, man, what a rotten circumstance. Or it could be, God has moved me here. What is the strategic gospel purpose that he might have in making me change jobs or move houses or go to a new location. I often think this when I, when I taught it um, at PCC. I have these students who are in the classroom who are nursing and engineering and all of these other majors. I'm like, man, what if people deployed their careers in a way that is strategic for the cause of the gospel? You say, okay, I can go be a nurse anywhere, right? Everywhere needs nurses. How about I go be a nurse where there's a church plant that's happening so I can come in and be part of that on the front lines as opposed to just going wherever and not thinking strategically? What if we thought strategically about our moves, about our job changes? What if we thought that all these changes that come our way that we don't expect could be the providential hand of God putting us into contact with people that we would not have been in contact with otherwise? Now, one of the things that I think is really beautiful in the book of Acts is that we don't get the sense that there are these organized, structured programs for evangelism. Rather, we get the sense that Christians just went around telling people about Jesus. It wasn't like, hey, this is on Saturday at 10 o'clock, we're meeting at the church, but this was just a, I'm going around, and of course I would tell people about what is important to me. You see, my goal, my desire, my prayer for our church is not that we have a bunch of evangelistic programs, but rather that we have a culture of evangelism. Like, think about how awesome this would be if we had a church full of people who in the normal course of their daily lives were just telling people about Jesus. We're just like, hey, I'm going to start a Bible study in my apartment complex. Hey, I'm just going to figure out a way to reach my neighbors with the gospel. Culture is something so much different than just a a program or an organized Structure is something that's going to continue on because it's important to you. We put it this way. The evangelistic faithfulness of Cloverleaf Baptist Church depends on the evangelistic faithfulness of each of our members. We say, man, Cloverleaf needs to do a better job on evangelism. I I think we do. But if we mean by that we need to put more things on the calendar, we're sort of missing the point. If if we treasure Christ and we treasure the gospel and we see, see people around us as souls with an eternal soul who need Jesus, it'd be natural for us to open our mouths and speak. Okay, let me give you another way that evangelism happens in Acts. 
So you say, okay, I'm not really up for the preaching before the big crowds. I can do the one-on-one. Man, I've got a move that just happened in my job. I just had to move floors at the hospital, or I just got moved to a different department at work. Seize those strategies. But here's another one, and I'm going to call this dialoguing. We move into the ministry of Paul, and Paul sometimes will preach when he gets opportunities. But Acts chapter 17, we see a new vocabulary word that pops into the discussion, and it really only shows up on this, uh, this missionary journey of Paul. Acts 17, verses 1 to 4. This gives us a good snapshot of how Paul often did his ministry. Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, so it's three Saturdays in a row when they're, when they're gathering on Shabbat, reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So he's using reason, being like, guys, look at these Old Testament texts, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. Like, guys, you missed this. Isaiah 53, Messiah had to suffer. And risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. That's his message, is Messiah had to suffer, and Jesus fits the bill. He is the Messiah. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So we see Paul persuading and reasoning. We see it again in verse 17. Uh, When Paul goes to Athens, verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue. That word disputed, again, is this idea of of persuading. It's not necessarily they're yelling at each other, but there's a back and forth dialogue. Uh, The word here, in fact, is dialegami. It's this arguing, it's this debating, it's seeking to persuade people um, and arguing in the best sense. right? We're, 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 We're exchanging reasons, a give and take. Uh, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Here's the point I want to make here. Giving the gospel is not a one-sided presentation monologue where you're like, all right, let me, let me get going with my sales pitch. Boom, here it is. But a lot of times it's a conversation where you ask questions to try to draw, try to draw people out, and they might respond with questions of their own, and we're seeking to persuade people. And by the way, notice this didn't happen in just one session where it's like, all right, I've got to give them the gospel. I've got to be in and out. But he's working on this over multiple weeks. He would have stayed, by the way, longer in Thessalonica had they not run him out of town. Uh, so it's not like, hey, we do give it three tries. This is not a heavy-handed, one-sided conversation uh, of the overzealous salesman at the door. You ever have someone, I mean, this guy came by, was trying to sell like security cameras, and just would not be like, hey, we're not interested. He just kept on talking. That's not a good way to go about trying to win people to Jesus. Um, I, I've unfortunately seen folks who would literally put their foot in the door and, you're going to hell, while they're trying to give the gospel. That's just not a good way to do it. We want to be genuinely courteous, respectful, and intensely interested in the eternal well-being of other people. Okay, we come along here. Um, we give more and more examples. we got Paul when he meets with... Uh, with Aquila and Priscilla, he says they're of the same trade in, in Acts, I think, Acts chapter 18, um, interacting with people at work. But here's the question you want to ask. How can you use your job? How can you use your set of talents? How can you use your social network, and I don't mean the online one, but the actual people you know, to gain a hearing for the gospel? See, all of us have different things that we can do well. How can you use the things that you do well to build relationships with people to genuinely love them and gain a hearing for the gospel. 
would it be possible to start a Bible study with some coworkers over lunch to say, hey, we always have these good discussions. Would you like to join me? We've got an hour for lunch. Why don't we take 20 minutes and we're going to read through the Gospel of Mark together and let the Spirit of God do the work as you go through Mark together. What if you said, I'm going to try to host an event in, in my neighborhood, have people over, or I'm just going to invite neighbors to come get dinner with me, get to know them. More broadly, how could you find ways to get outside the bubble and have conversations with those who don't know Christ? I know it's very easy and sort of comforting to have friendships within this church, and we should. But it can be easy to only sort of do things with other Christians. Be like, hey, we want to start a soccer league, and it's going to be a Christian soccer league, and we're going to have an orchestra, and it's going to be a Christian orchestra in such a way that the only people we ever interact with are other Christians. I would suggest that that's the wrong way to think about it. What we should be thinking is, how can I be a witness in this world, in this community where God has placed us? So maybe you're athletic. I am not athletic. Um, But maybe you're of the more athletic persuasion and you know sports. Why not sign up to go coach a little league team? Not so you can, like, preach at the kids instead of practicing baseball, but so you can get to know people and get to know their lives and get to know these families. And in the course of it, gain their respect and gain an opportunity to give the gospel. If you're academic... Why not volunteer at a school as a tutor? If you live in a neighborhood, why not host a neighbor night or have folks over? Why not find a way to go help clean up a park or help with a community event so you can get connected with people and build relationships? Your mom, your kid's got to go play and do things like that. Why not schedule play dates with other moms and begin building relationships? Like as you're talking about real life issues about like motherhood and life and like not sleeping, like, we've already kind of gone right into real life there. Uh, the, the sky's the limit, right? None of these things are, like, biblically mandated, just suggestions to get you thinking. The point here is start building these relationships and start loving people. Evangelism should be motivated by genuine love for your neighbor. It's not something different than love your neighbor as yourself and then go tell people about Jesus, but you tell people about Jesus because you love them, building genuine friendships with them. When you think about it in your own life, do you appreciate it when someone approaches you uninvited in the mall to try to sell you hand lotion? You know, Christmas time, and they're like, here you go. You're like, that's kind of annoying. We shouldn't have the same. If we find it annoying, the golden rule would suggest other people find it annoying. It's probably not a good way to witness for the gospel. Uh, Or someone who messages you on social media you haven't talked to in years, and you're like, wow, they're really interested. Oh, wait, they want to get me into their pyramid scheme. That's not how we do the gospel. We call this personal evangelism for a reason, because it's relational. Um, And uh, J.I. Packer says some of the ways we evangelize could be better termed impersonal evangelism. Love your neighbor as yourself. So God uses Christians. That's the point. God wants to use you and me in this great, glorious task of bringing sinners to himself. Uh, Romans 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean someone who's standing behind a pulpit, someone declaring the gospel. And how shall they preach unless they be sent? Now, as we go out and evangelize, it can feel like an overwhelming task. And so I want to conclude here with some encouragement. This is the final, final, final building block for a biblical vision of, of evangelism. God is the one who guarantees the results. We're called, in a sense, to sort of scatter the seed. But God is the one who ultimately brings about life and brings about the harvest. Let me just 
rapid fire, go through some truths here that I think will be an encouragement. Because listen, nothing is more discouraging than being like, I've got to go do this really difficult thing, tell people about Jesus, and there's no guarantee that it's going to actually work. And I might be rejected again and again and again and again. I'm not going to bother with that. If I were to tell you, hey, do this, you know, sign up for my new workout program. It's way worse than CrossFit, P90X, and Insanity combined into one. And it may or may not help you lose weight. In fact, you might even gain weight. You'd be like, well, I'm not going to do that. Say, here's this really difficult thing, evangelism, and guess what? God guarantees the results. Like, this should be a great motivation and an encouragement. So I want to end this message with just a note of encouragement to discouraged evangelists. To say, God will bless his word and his efforts. The first promise I want to remind you of is Acts 1.8. God is the one who empowers his people. You'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Everything that we have said this morning and tonight is absolutely impossible for you and me to do on our own. You cannot convert a single sinner. You cannot save a single soul. You cannot transform a single life. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that sinners are dead in trespasses and sins. You would have as much success standing in a graveyard preaching a sermon as you would standing before a live audience calling them to believe in Jesus. It's it's only going to be by the the power of the Spirit of God, with the hand of the Lord being with us. We likewise balk at the magnitude of the task. Go make disciples of all the nations. You're like, well, there's a lot of nations. We could balk at the weakness of our talent, the enormity of the opposition. If there's one note that we see in the book of Acts, it's persecution, 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 opposition, opposition. We look at our culture, and we see a culture that more and more is sliding into secularism and into confusion and into darkness. We may draw back at the danger of the moment. Listen, only the filling of the Holy Spirit can give us the power we need to effectively and clearly and powerfully declare Christ. And guess what? God has given us that power, the Holy Spirit of God. Like you have all the resources you need, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Here's another truth. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The end of Peter's Pentecost sermon and all these glorious things happening in the church. We unpacked this in some detail a few weeks back. It says, The church was praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That is so comforting to be like, to realize I don't have to grow Cloverleaf Baptist Church. The Lord is the one who grows Cloverleaf Baptist Church. The Lord is the one who saves sinners. What a comfort that is. We don't save sinners, but the Lord does. He's commanded us to preach, and he has committed himself to do the saving. He has promised to build his church, and hell's gates will not prevail against it. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the sovereign over men's souls. And we can be confident that as we evangelize, God will save Here's another truth. I mentioned this morning the requirement of a re- repentance. Have you ever tried to change your own heart before? Okay, I'm going to change like what I love. I don't have the capacity to change my heart or anybody else's heart. That's exactly what repentance is. That is what is required for someone to be saved, that they have a heart change, that they turn from sin. Jesus says it very clearly in John 3, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You could say, everybody repent. They'd be like, no, I like my sin. Why would I repent? It takes a work of God. I love this statement in Acts 5, verse 31. Peter says this, him, speaking of Jesus, has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel. 
Repentance, according to this text, is a gift that God gives. It's not something that people have to try to, uh, try to gin it up. It's a gift from God. And forgiveness. So, well, maybe that's just for Israel over in Acts chapter 11. Verse 18, we get the same note. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance is a gift that God gives. It's not something we have to try to coerce out of people, but it's a gift that God grants. What an encouragement that is to me as I evangelize, as I preach the gospel, knowing that God will give some that gift of repentance. Praise God that in his grace he grants that. It's not our work, it's his work. What an encouragement. You see, God can break through to the most hardened sinner. He can reach to the deepest depravity. And God's grace is the only ground for our success in evangelism. Here's another encouragement. Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 13. And many of the Jewish people reject the message. And many of the Gentiles then begin to receive it. Verse Acts 13, 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Praise God, he has people that he has ordained to eternal life that will surely believe. Praise God for that. He ordains sinners to eternal life. Now some people will say, well, if God's ordained sinners to eternal life, why do I need to go give the gospel if he's going to save them anyway? That was the question that was uh, given to uh, William or Adoniram Judson, William Carey, when he wanted to go to India, they, they said, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it himself. Some people will say that believing that God has ordained people to eternal life and to faith, they'll say that makes preaching pointless. I would argue the opposite. It's what makes us, guarantees our success. Far from making evangelism pointless, it's promises like this that establish our only hope of success. We can't overcome the hardness of heart, the allure of the world, the power of Satan in a man's soul, but God can and God does. God works powerfully and God works mightily in the darkened hearts of sinners, securing their voluntary response to the gospel. This isn't, by the way, not God coercing people who are like, I don't want to believe, but drawing them lovingly to himself. Indeed, God calls all men everywhere, saying, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and saying, whosoever will may come. And God also guarantees that those whom he has ordained will be eternally saved. Let's see another example of this. Acts 16. Peter, Paul shows up in the city of Philippi. First city in Europe that the gospel goes to. And he goes down by the river because the, uh, there's not even a synagogue. There's not enough Jewish men in the city to form a synagogue. So he goes to the river where people pray. Verse 14, and a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended unto the things which were spoken by Paul. Pray, this is awesome that God opens hearts to receive the gospel. Hearts that just the day before would have been closed and said, no, thank you. God opens and she willingly and joyfully receives the truth. You know who Paul gives credit to for Lydia's conversion? Paul doesn't give Paul credit for it. He certainly doesn't give Lydia credit for her own conversion. He gives the credit to God. He says he's the one who opened her heart to the gospel. That's God's graciousness. And then in Acts chapter 18, Paul comes into Corinth, which is an infamously immoral and wicked city. And there's all kinds of chaos going on, and he's begun to preach. Some have believed they have been baptized. Look at verse 9. 
Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. So Paul's just beginning his ministry in Corinth. He's going to be there for quite a while. In fact, he's going to stay there a year and six months, so he's sort of at the front end of it. Jesus says, don't be afraid, but speak. Hey, preach the gospel. Hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. So Paul's on the front end of his ministry. There's only a handful who've gotten saved, and Jesus is like, keep preaching, because I've got much people in the city, people who I am going to save. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor about uh, D.A. Carson's dad, a guy named Tom Carson. He was ministering in Quebec, uh, a very, very hard field of ministry where they would labor for years and years and years and just see a handful of converts. And he never pastored a church of more than 25 people, but was incredibly faithful. And because of events that were happening in the Congo in the 60s uh, and in French, the former French colonial areas of, of Africa, a bunch of missionaries who had been there come to Quebec saying, hey, we had great success in these other parts of the world, and they show up. And none of them lasted more than a year because they expected the same results there as they had back where they, where they had been ministering before. And Don Carson asked his dad, he says, why don't you go to another part of the world where you're going to see results? He says, dad turned to him, he says, I stay because I believe God has much people in this city. I stay because I believe that God is going to save sinners. And in the 70s, there was a great revival in Quebec. It went from 40 evangelical churches to 500 evangelical churches. Believe that God would work. God's purposes are faithful. Great quote here from J.I. Packer, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, The sovereignty of God in grace gave Paul hope of success as he preached to deaf ears and held up Christ before blind eyes and sought to move stony hearts. His confidence was that where Christ sends the gospel, there Christ has his people. Fast bound at present in the chains of sin, but sure for a release at the appointed moment through a mighty renewing of their hearts as the light of the gospel shines into their darkness and the Savior draws them to himself. So what was the result? Verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Sometimes we get discouraged when we don't see results right away. We're like, man, I witnessed this guy. He didn't get saved. But if we believe God is the one who does the saving of the sinners, he calls me simply to be faithful. That is what will give you the stick to That's what will give you the persistence. Paul preached, and God saved. The truth is that God is saving a people for his name through our evangelizing, and this is what gives our evangelism any hope of success. So far from these truths saying, oh, I guess God's going to just save people, I'm going to just sit back, sit on my hands, and wait for him to do it, this should encourage us to say, man, I want to get out there and be part of what God is doing. There are people around me who right now are resistant to the gospel, but who knows what God may do in their hearts? Who knows how God may open their hearts, how he may draw them to himself, how he may convict them of sin. I don't have to resort to clever methodologies and worldly wisdom. I simply can declare the gospel freely and boldly and trust God to do the saving. These truths should make us bold witnesses. These truths should make us fervent prayer warriors. You see, when you're praying for someone to get saved, you are assuming that God has the sovereign right to do something in their heart, to bring them to saving faith. The moment you say, God, would you please help grandma to get saved, you're recognizing that it's ultimately not in her hands, but in God's hands to do something in her life. It should make us patient evangelists to his glory. So I want to just end on that note of encouragement. 
go from here, Cloverleaf Baptist Church, even this week and say, I want to start having a gospel conversation with, with somebody in, in my orbit, in my, in my social network. Not just inviting them to church, but inviting them to Christ. Not just living out my testimony before them, but pointing them to Jesus. Sharing what God has done for my soul, and then going beyond that, explaining what God can do for their soul through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. So I say these are four crucial building blocks for our, our understanding, our practice of evangelism. God designs, defines the task. Evangelism is not just everything that we want to call it, but it's that task of telling people about Christ. He's already determined the message, so we don't have to be creative. We can simply say, here's the message, and let me present this persuasively and winsomely. God uses us, which is just mind-boggling, in the great task of history, of building a name, a people for the name of Christ. He uses sinners like you and me. And God's the one who guarantees the results. So may God empower our witness in this city for his glory. Just stand with me as we, as we close out in a word of prayer tonight.